Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpe, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. We have a great topic today that affects everybody, whether you know it or not, and that's the role of technology in our lives. The implications of technology as a means of wielding power uh, or as a means of informing uh, what's the role of information, misinformation, and disinformation? And today, our guest from a trade association known as the Chamber of Progress, Mr. Adam Kavakovich. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk a little bit about law and society and how oftentimes technology runs ahead of the law, and we're trying to figure out how to codify and and maintain our constitutional republic form of democracy while we embrace these new technologies, hopefully to make a better world. Adam, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe where your early days were and a little bit about your professional arc and what you're up to today. Sure. I grew up in Bakersfield, California. My dad's a farmer, but I did not get the farming genes. Um, I came east for for school and eventually ended up working on Capitol Hill for my local congress congressman. I got the political bug. And um, he was one of the founders of what were called the New Democrats, which were the kind of late 90s Clinton-Gore era moderate Democrats. One of the things that they were really interested in was technology, promoting um, the the U.S. tech industry, and that kind of opened my eyes to the tech industry, which was you know nascent at that time, and in its issues. And so, since then, I've really spent my career at the intersection of politics and and the technology industry. I ended up working a couple of years on Capitol Hill, and then I went to um, a small company called Google. Um, when it had uh, was it was start setting up its Washington D.C. office, I was the seventh or eighth employee in that office, and ended up staying there for about twelve years, working on all of the public policy issues affecting the company. I then went to uh, a company called Lime, which is one of the companies that provides the scooters you see in many cities, the shared electric scooters, and that was a lot of fun. But you know, I was interested to start this group um, because I I kind of frankly I think I saw. Um, particularly Democratic policymakers, used to be, I think, pretty excited about the technology industry. And I think that that now, over the last couple of years, um, some have taken kind of a more negative turn. I don't believe that's totally consistent with where voters' opinions are. And I was interested in doing something about it. So it's kind of a, a new kind of, of, of tech policy industry group. What's the mission of the Chamber of Progress? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, the thing that I was, I should back up and say, one of the things I've, I've always liked about working in the technology industry is the way that I think a lot of technology services help advance what I consider to be kind of progressive societal goals, right? So, for example, when I worked at Google, one of the big controversies I worked on was the Google Book 
search project because it, the, that project was scanning, you know, millions of books and libraries, and and it was taking, um, uh, I would say, an, an aggressive but but grounded approach to copyright policy, right? But when you really take a take a step back from that project, its goal was to make you know university library uh, library contents available to anybody right and, and it used to be that you know you'd have to live near a university library to have access to those books and so I think you know projects like that um, have always gotten me excited about kind of the potential of technology and the way that it's kind of gotten rid of information middleman I think driven costs uh, lower for consumers all of that's really exciting and then there's just kind of the cool factor you know the way that like you know you think about like the drone that might deliver a package to our house someday and so I've always been excited about that that aspect of technology, that potential for technology. But I also think we 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 need to be honest about the fact that you know um, not technology does have downsides. It has it has um, negative impacts that need to be regulated, that need to be kind of mitigated. We should have smart rules in place in regulation to prevent that. And we should also make sure that we have rules in place to make sure particularly the biggest companies operate responsibly and in the interest of consumers. So, so you know, I think um, some traditional business groups might say no rules at all, kind of untrammeled free market where we take a little bit different approach. I've been in the technology businesses for a long time and, in fact, pioneered some of the things that became to be known as groupware and hoteling and telecommuting and those types of things, obviously ancient history from, from those beginnings. But my observation was that we hadn't socialized those new technologies yet. Nobody knew how to behave politely. And I'm a perpetual optimist. I think we're getting there. But can imagine if you're a member of Congress that, you know, all of a sudden people are doing things differently. And, you know, what do we need to do about it? Maybe it's nothing as you've said, unfettered free enterprise, or maybe it's something like it needs to be centralized. And, and I think there's a lot of room between those poles. Where can our listeners, readers, and viewers find out more about your organization? Uh, on the internet, uh, progresschamber.org uh, is our website, and we have links to our Twitter feed and videos there. So everything's, it's a really good comp collection of all of our work. And who funds Chamber of Progress? We're a business trade association, so we're funded completely by companies. Uh, we have about 32 companies that are among our funders from you know, big companies like uh, Apple and Google and Meta, Amazon, to innovators like uh, Cruise and Waymo that are autonomous vehicle companies, companies like Instacart and DoorDash involved in delivery, um, uh, fintech companies like Chime, um, and increasingly some of the companies that are innovators in the cryptocurrency space as well. So, so we are uh, we we like to be transparent about who our funders are, uh, and we're one hundred percent supported by by companies. How would those sponsors define success for Chamber of Progress? You know, I think most of them. Uh, the way I like to think about it is that I think that technology as an industry is not yet being regulated maturely, by which I mean, um, I think technology had a kind of a long political honeymoon. And then really, probably around the time uh, 2016 uh, happened, uh, a lot of, you know, the technology industry started leaving its dirty laundry on the floor and a lot of policymakers started threatening a divorce, right? And I think we're <laughs> still in the phase where a lot of the ideas that you see from policymakers, the bills and regulations they propose are 
I consider somewhat extreme reactions to what they're seeing. Um, and I think we are, we will get to the phase of technology regulation where we we we, we regulate kind of modestly um, to address a, a, a true consumer pain point. For example, you know, I remember 2008, 2009, when there were a bunch of instances of people getting on commercial airplanes and sitting on the tarmac for like five hours, right? They couldn't go to the bathroom. They weren't given snacks. You probably remember this. And it led to that summer, there was a whole kind of consumer outcry against Congress. And Congress... Um, you know, directed the FAA to do something about it. And they came up with what became known as the three-hour rule. And the three-hour rule says you can't sit on the tarmac for more than three hours without giving people notification, bathroom, snacks, et cetera. It worked. Like this was an amazing example of like a regulation that worked in the sense of like it almost, it, it, it eliminated this problem almost overnight. And they didn't break up Delta Airlines. You know, they didn't tax United Airlines, right? They, they applied a rule that made sense, um, across the board to all airlines, big and small, to and again, to respond to a consumer pain point. I don't see right now in tech policy and innovation a lot of ideas like that where they're responding to, you know, a genuine consumer outcry. Typically, they're being kind of the ideas that are being pushed are being pushed for some other reason, a lot of times by kind of the the other industries that have been disrupted by technology. That's a great example, in my humble opinion. And the challenge with technology is it's moving so fast. The regulators are trying to hit a moving target. You know, we can go back to the breakup of AT&T, where the you know, judge decided that it was better to break them up into the baby bells versus keeping this one behemoth. IBM was restricted. And in the 90s, there was antitrust action against Microsoft. But today, I mean, things are just moving so much faster. How do you regulate something when people really don't know how to use it yet? We really don't understand it. And by the time you find out what the problem is, it, you're all, it's, it's just way too late. Are you running into anything like that? Oh, absolutely. I think you see this all the time. You know, so for example, I think one of the most notable examples of this right now is about, uh, I think I would get my timer about 10 years ago, um, Facebook acquired uh, Instagram, and then eight years ago, it acquired WhatsApp. And both of those were small companies that did not have a lot of, um, they, they were growing, they were successful, but, but they were early in their, in their life cycle. And Facebook recognized an opportunity there, and I think, but made both services even more successful. Um, a couple of years ago, when there started to be, I think, more anxiety about Facebook's power as a company, um, policymakers and regulators at the Federal Trade Commission, in particular, launched a lawsuit two years ago against Facebook, saying that their acquisition, those acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram, eight and ten years ago, respectively were illegal, should not have been allowed in the first place, and should be unwound. And I think in some ways, they're kind of penalizing Facebook for having successfully integrated those companies into, into WhatsApp. But, the, but if you just take a look at the broader competitive environment, um, in social networking, TikTok is increasingly eating uh, Facebook's lunch, right? In terms of they are on the, they are on the growth trajectory. Um, they're the hot you know, the, the hot app for young people in particular. And yet, you know, all these government resources are going to kind of almost fighting the last war. And so, you know, I, so I think, I think it does take, I think it does take regulatory humility to say, 
look, we, we are concerned about power, but let's see where the where where there is true concentration of power. Social media, for example, I just think is so fickle because every new generation of young people wants its own space. And so it's really hard for a social media service to social networking service to hold on to its kind of um, pole, you know, pole position culturally. And I think that's kind of why you see like this. So this, I think every day that goes on this federal trade commission suit against Facebook now, now known as meta kind of just looks more and more outdated because of the rise of TikTok. So I think that's a good example. That's a fantastic example. And not without historical parallels. You think about television programming, my parents since deceased, you know, what time is something on? versus yeah. well, who, oh yeah i don't think we'll ever go back to that no yeah, we'll never right. go back yeah, to yeah. that anymore yeah that's right yeah, my generation it's time shifting and now my children it's like tv what, what do you care we, we'll go get what we want when we when we want it you know and totally and, 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 and i mean you know it's funny because like we still have rules in place at the federal communications commission about like how many newspapers you can own in a local state TV market right, and how right. many how many broadcast stations you can own. And I understand that that's based in part on, you know, those those services being broadcast over the over the air and they're using government granted spectrum. So government has a stake in that. But but you look at policies like that and you sort of think, well, you know, it's it's not hard for people to find kind of a diversity of, of views anymore. One thing I'm curious about, why do you identify as a center left organization? A great question. It's a little unusual, admittedly, but part of the part of reason why I was interested in doing that was because um, I, I've spent a lot of my career in democratic politics. And I had this experience of seeing uh, Democrats um, be excited about the technology industry for a long time. And then, um, and then I think really after Trump got elected, I think um, many elected democratic policymakers started taking a more negative turn. And in my view, most democratic voters don't feel that way. Um, don't feel that negative turn. But one of the things I think is true about politics today, and, you know, and, and I think in some ways this is unfortunate, but I think it's also true is that both parties are having kind of a, a debate within the party, right? E- each party about how they handle something, right? And so that just as if, just as I think within the Republican party, there's, you know, some kind of traditional free market voices versus more kind of a kind of a MAGA kind of nationalistic uh, voice. I think that's also true within the Democratic Party when it comes to debates about technology and innovation. I think there's one strain of thought that that sort of, you know, within the Democratic Party that that tends to be um, very natural, like naturally suspicious of power and um, that, you know, a view that sort of technology services must be predatory or hurting people kind of in the background without their knowledge. And then I think there's an, other views that, you know, yeah, uh, te- frankly, technology services make my life pretty, pretty much easier, more convenient. And I'm excited about kind of the, the opportunities that it brings. And so uh, what I see now kind of in the political landscape is that it's really important to be part of kind of like that intra party debate within the party. Um, and I also frankly saw that there were other organizations like mine who were solely focused on Republicans. So, um, admittedly it's a, it's a, it's a choice that I think reflected, reflects kind of the political environment today for, for good or for ill. Good for you for being right upfront about where you stand and probably good to find a center right person, even better have you both on at the same yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. For, for conversation because these are universal communicators. And one of the things that you talk about on your website is digital opportunity for all. I can't 
overemphasize the need for that. And again, historical precedents, rural electrification, universal phone service that when we had landlines, there was always a base level of service so that everyone had a telephone so you wouldn't be cut off. And if you look what happened during the pandemic, schools were closed and some more wealthy districts, oh, go ahead and work from home. No problem. They go into the private bedroom, they pop up their computer, they download Zoom. And you've got places that I'm very familiar with that there were no devices, no place to work and no Wi-Fi in the home. And I I believe that we need to open that digital connectivity so that we get everybody in. We can't have the technology haves and the technology have nots. Uh, Absolutely. When you hear these stories about people, you know, uh, listening, going to the uh, library, public library parking lot and parking their car outside just to be able to get, you know, a portion of the library Wi-Fi signal so that they can apply for jobs or their kids can go to school. I mean, it kind of breaks your heart. And it does, I think, point out uh, a need for significant investments in broadband access. Um, the uh, the infrastructure bill that was passed last year in Congress do- definitely does that. You've seen mm-hmm. states increasingly doing that. So we're, we're big supporters of that. And I'm very optimistic. I do think that, you know, the it's, it's interesting. So when I worked at Google, it was an interesting thing that happened where um, – policymakers from other parts of the world and other parts of the country would come to the Google headquarters in Silicon Valley and they would sort of say, well, how do, how do we create our own Silicon Valley in, you know, Ohio or Tennessee or wherever the case may be? And, you know, there's always this kind of like uh, pursuit f- uh, of, of good jobs, better jobs. And the old playbook for that was like, let's, you know, attract a company to bring its regional headquarters or headquarters or warehouse here. And that will kind of draw workers here. And then that will lead to more tax revenue and better schools and so forth with increasingly, you know, the kind of remote work revolution. I think it means that, you know, people like any city could become a tech city, could become an attractor of high tech jobs. um, But they're competing on something different, which is quality of life. So I actually, I think that's good for, I think that will be good. It is, has been good and it will be good for kind of diversifying the gains of technology to more parts of the country so that more parts of the country can lay claim to being kind of benefits, beneficiaries of the tech economy. I think your first example about getting libraries from universities online is clearly a democratization of that information. And it's, you know, generally fairly high quality. Um, At least there's citations. You can see who did the writing, how they did the research and such. And, and make your, your own judgments. Those are some of the benefits. And of, of course, there's many more. But what about the risks that we see? Things like the ability to track. And, you know, we, we've actually seen the ability to make a non-person out of people. You know, coordinated deplatforming, the, the ability to track and stop your car. We were reading recently that if you're near the border with Canada coming in, the Department of Homeland Security is alleged and I don't know this for a fact, but alleged to be able to download everything off your cell phone and keep it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. What about the risks of that digital world that we're running into? Is this something you deal with or are you more about the content and information and such? No, I, I think what you just described is a consistent theme in technology policy debates and regulation debates, which is to say that every awesome tool that we use can also be someone else's weapon, right? Whether it's, and it's all the things you described. And I think there 
you know, in to criticize the technology industry for a bit, I think that in in the past, I think there's sometimes kind of a naive naivete about uh, about the way that a, a positive surface a service or or tool will be abused. People hadn't necessarily thought about um, all the ways it will be abused, right? But um, but I think increasingly. I, I do believe that companies are getting smarter about this. So, for example, you know, I worked at Lime, which is one of the scooter company shared scooter companies, and I think the shared scooters are an amazing service for getting around cities kind of more efficiently. But there were issues around where should they be parked, right? Do you how do you make park the um, how do you park the the scooters to make sure they're not blocking, for example, a, a handicap. Uh, access uh, curb cut or sidewalk, right? And then how do you kind of in, um, police that behavior, right? How do you, it, it's great thing that these scooters are sort of dockless, that makes them more accessible, but how do you encourage responsible parking? And so I think my my general feeling about this is, um, you know, the, you see, unfortunately, some policymakers adopt a view that because of the negative, we should sort of stand on top of the whole thing and put hit the pause button. So for example, um, you know, the, the, some of the, some of the union, uh, union organizations are very opposed to autonomous vehicles because they're concerned about them having a negative impact on, uh, driver jobs, which I'm very sympathetic to, but to the point that they're, their official position is there should be no autonomous vehicles without a human driver. And I just don't think that's uh, a realistic position or a credible position, it's much, it would be much smarter, for example, to take an area like that and say, look, there's going to be this big transition and there are going to be driving jobs that are affected. There are going to be new job types of jobs that are going to be created. What can the government do to help train drivers, today's drivers, to uh, fill new kinds of jobs that are going to be created? That's the responsible thing to do. And I think people might feel a little less anxious about it if they saw that government policy was kind of stepping in to help in that situation, right? And so I do think like ideal regulation in any situation is preserving the beneficial use of the service while mitigating the, you know, 5%, 10% case of, of abuse and, and trying to get that down um, to be as low as possible, lower than lower than 5%, hopefully. I think this is a universal truth of the human experience. If you go back to the 1900s, 50% of the United States workforce was involved in agriculture, and now it's 2%. So from the view when mechanization was coming in, it it would be, well, 48% of the people are going to be out of work. And clearly that didn't happen. And when you think about automobiles, and I'm a proud native Detroiter, all right, um, so seen a lot of this, what we really did is we took the horse and buggy model, you know, the stable behind your house. No, now it's a garage behind your house. You've got a hitching post. No, you got a parking space. You own the horse, you feed the horse. Now you own the car, you, you maintain, you insure and you store the car. We're going to a new place. And I've spoken to a number of people that are in the automobile industry, segments of the population, uh, folks that have disabilities, movement restrictions and the like, being able to call up a vehicle that they need when they want it versus having to maintain, store and insure one. It's going to be a much better transportation and another role for big tech you know, Waze or, you know, Google Maps right now telling you where the traffic jams are, the cars are going to know where the other cars are. 
All right. It, so I, I think we're going to a new place and there will be disruption. And I don't think anybody could really say, well, what are those new jobs going to be? But they'll be out there doing something. Yep, that's right. So the political pressure for a party in power to use or misuse some of the information. So Facebook slash Meta can be pressured to throttle a story. We saw that happen in the last presidential election cycle. We had a pandemic and there was some good information put out. And also there were a number of impeccably qualified people who were kicked off Twitter and they ultimately ended up being right. So how do we rein in the instincts of those in power from wielding that power in an unhealthy way through the technology? Yeah. Look, I think this question about content moderation and how the big tech platforms engage in content moderation, um, they're using their editorial judgment, is probably one of the biggest um, central issues in tech policy debate right now. And it's, I think it's, it's largely influenced by the partisan divide, too, particularly around speech. And so, you know, it's interesting. I think that a, a fair amount of um, activity, a fair amount of what pol- policymakers talk about uh, when it comes to the tech platforms now is what I what, what some people call job owning, which is policymakers using their bully pulpit to try to push Facebook or YouTube or Twitter to take down or not take down certain types of content, right? So they're actually appealing and putting pressure on the companies themselves. And this question of like how the services engage in content moderation has has just become harder and harder. And like and, and there are whole departments within each of the companies that are typically called trust and safety. And what I think people don't totally understand about them is, um, you know, they're everybody, all of these services all remove content that is clearly illegal, right? So child pornography is clearly illegal. Uh, services work. Uh, actively to remove that through a combination of human review and algorithms. But then there's a whole category of speech that is not illegal, but which raises questions. And I think all of the platforms have all started, you know, from a free freedom of expression baseline, right? They want to allow as much speech on their platform as possible from varying views, right? But then you get into these situations that just challenge that norm. And so you think, um, example, like the Tide Pod Challenge, right, where people were like swallowing (laughs) Tide Pods, right? And it's free speech, but it's also dangerous, right? Or you think about um, somebody doxing somebody. You know, if I had a dispute from you and I go into YouTube and I post your your home address and I say, you know, send... send a bunch of, you know, fake packages to your house or whatever, um, you know, that's legal. That's legal speech. But but most of the platforms have adopted a whole range of policies to deal with these situations where it's speech that's lawful but awful. And awful, of course, is in the eye of the beholder, right? What's one person's awful might be another person's, you know, perfectly acceptable. And there's no pleasing everyone. Um, but I, I will say, I think that, you know, the last couple of years... Um, have just tested that, right? When the, in the sense of like Trump, COVID, um, and January 6th, right? I mean, never before have we seen an insurrection on the Capitol, right? And so I think it's the kind of situation where 
you know, uh, if you're Twitter or Facebook and you have kind of this norm of, okay, we let people use our services for, to express themselves, then they have to ask themselves the question, well, are we comfortable with people using our service to broadcast their, you know, ransacking of the Capitol building? And, and I think not all of them are right. Or comfortable with, you know, lying Trump on. And I know it's hard because I think that, you know, when people see, you know, Twitter kicking off Trump, it, it, it tends to kind of reinforced, I think, in many Republicans, uh, conservatives eyes, like this sense of like, um, you know, kind of uh, big tech, uh, coastal elites kind of, you know, ganging up to suppress our views. But, you know, these are private services, they can allow whatever they want. And that and I think to make for them to make the choice that like, okay, we're just we draw the line at, you know, people using our platform for for insurrection, I think is a you know, it's a reasonable choice for them to make. Other services might make the choice differently. But this is why this is one of the most, you know, contentious areas right now, which is sort of this content moderation question. It is. And and one thing that did trouble me when Jen Psaki was the press secretary for President Biden and just came around and said, yeah, we send things over to Meta and tell them that we think this is a problem. And that's where I get concerned is about people in power. And as far as a former president, 3 a.m., tweets while he's sitting on the throne sending out stuff. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, here it comes again. Part of me, it's like, go ahead and do it. Show people who you are and, and let people decide. Let people decide. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think that a lot of what we've seen going on is really making him something of a mythical creature. And, yeah. you know, you get into, you know, the, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. And I think it's just driving the divide unintentionally. And I'm more of the kind of guy like, hey, just put it out there and yeah. let people be seen. And then we had, of course, you know, you know, Sam Harris said, you know, it admitted conspiracy to withhold a factual story about things that would be potentially damaging to President Biden vis-a-vis bribes and things through his son. And then after the election, yeah, well, we, you know, it was true. I'm not sure if that's really more of a technology question or a freedom of the press question, but it's out there. Could they have affected it yeah. as well, absent the tech platforms? Yeah. And I think that's why these are hard questions, right? So for example, like, and I think there's, I think there's a little bit of a tendency to kind of like be informed by the last controversy, right? So, you know, after 2016, there was a lot of efforts by the platforms to say, we're not going to, we're going to work extra hard to make sure that the the Russians can't kind of, you know, infiltrate our systems like they think they did before. But maybe that makes them a little bit um, uh, blind to the the new threat, right? And, you know, I do think that there's hard questions. I mean, like, for example, I think some of the, I think one of the things, frankly, some of the platforms have said that in the early days of even COVID, that they made certain decisions about blocking or even labeling tweets or posts they wouldn't do today, right? That like with the benefit of kind of hindsight. Um, And that's kind of what's often hard about content moderation is that like the, like the services know how to deal with kind of the established issue, but, but the novel issue is sometimes challenging. And, and I think by the company's own admission, sometimes they get the, they get the balance wrong. Um, And so, but it's just that we, we now, we now see kind of new, questions come up in this area of content moderation all the time. And, and I think that's what makes it challenging. Indeed. And it's the weaponization of the technology that, and I wrote about this in my most recent column about, you know, narrative versus news. And so much of our consumers of news 
look at an article and skip over the fact that the source is people close to the matter or um, a confidential person that has subject matter knowledge. It's like, tell us what you're talking about and, yeah. and let people make that decision. And then also there needs to be, you know, that counter narrative so that people can sort that out. But we've, we've now divided into these camps of affirmation programming on the right, affirmation programming on the left. And the, the algorithms are going to keep feeding stories based on what a person likes. I hope to baffle them because I read everything. But I'll tell you something, Adam, this is not new. My first job in computer systems, I worked for a company. I didn't know it at the time, but they were the largest private databases in the world, the R.L. Polk Company, for doing direct mail. And what we could gather about a person was, you know, astonishing. We were getting, you know, like auto registration lists and census tract information and magazine subscriptions, and we could build a profile on a person. A data broker of its day. It was a data broker. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what. I mean, a, you know, an automotive company would come in, like, you know, Ford Motors introducing a new Mustang, and they'd say, you know, they wanted to target, you know, people driving a Camaro uh, that are in census tracts with income over this that also subscribe to these kind of magazines. And we would write an algorithm to go find these folks. And it was data mining that was being done, but with not nearly the technology power that we have today, because back then it was you know, pretty easy to get erased. But today, you know, I, I'm wondering what about young people that are recording their every move on social media. It's like, they're not going to want that <laughs> as an adult, as every, every adult did grew up without that. It's like, you know, I wasn't there. It didn't happen that way. No, I would actually argue that today's uh, teens and tweens have have, have actually internalized that lesson. And that's a big driver of the success of services like Snapchat and Instagram stories, Snapchat being completely, completely disappearing messages and Instagram stories being a, a little bit less ephemeral, but still somewhat ephemeral, too. So because I do think that people. Uh, again, you know, in your teens, you're kind of experimenting, right? You're trying on an identity and you don't really want it to chase mm -hmm. you everywhere. <laughs> and so I think that that's a big, that's a big driver for the success of those services. You know, one of the other things when I look at risks on the technology platform and, you know, now the situation that's coming to the fore, we're about to get some movement on it. But the fact that there's been direct extraction from tech platforms by our government that they've gone in to take information out. And James Clapper said, yeah, that's a thing we should be doing now. It's like, no, that's not a thing we should do. And you look at the you know Washington Post pivot from supporting what Edward Snowden is doing to now what Snowden was doing was a really bad thing. What do we do about limiting government's ability to harvest our data and our information? Well, in fact, I mean, this is something I've also worked on, uh, particularly earlier in my career, you know, um, there, there's a whole range of proposals that would require government to go through more hoops, um, and particularly requ requiring a um, a judicial warrant rather than a, the lower standard of a subpoena. Although most of the platforms now do require law enforcement to come to them with a warrant, but one of the things we've seen, we do see law enforcement doing, is law enforcement will go to say. Google or Facebook and ask them for a user's data because they're the subject of investigation or they're, there's some other subject. And a lot of times the, the, the law enforcement will gag 
the company from telling the user. So they'll come with a non-disclosure order preventing Google or Facebook from telling the consumer, the user that their data has been requested by the government. And this is something that the companies would like to see change. They'd like to make it harder for the government to get um, one of these gag orders on on the platform so that they can tell the user, right? It's not to say that they're, they're not going to deny the government their request if they come to them from a warrant. They want to be, the, government, the, the companies want to be responsible in, in, in cooperating with lawful requests from law enforcement. But um, but then you think, you know, there, there's, for example, like a bill in Congress by Senator Ron Wyden that would prevent um, any federal law enforcement agency from buying data from uh, a data broker like the, the one you you worked at, you know, used to work at. And so, you know, that it hasn't gone anywhere yet. But I do think, you know, that's an interesting proposal to deal with this problem as well. You know, the government scooping up additional data that they then can mine. So instead of a specific thing about a particular crime where there's probable cause, they're gathering yeah. a wide range of information. And I think that has got really serious consequences. I agree. If, uh, I had Professor Daniel Crane from the University of Michigan Law School on my show early on because the way that Hitler used the monopolies in Germany or the duopolies when it wasn't a monopoly to take control of the country was astonishing. He only had to control two airplane companies, two pharma companies, etc., which he did. And now when you look at the concentration of information in the hands of a few companies, that temptation for someone to take us to a totalitarian state is great for people to That's think right. that way. I mean, so so what you're describing sometimes is um, people talk about what's called geofence warrant. So geofence warrant might see, you know, a, a police in, say, New York City go to Google and say, okay, Google, give us the names of all of the people who are in Times Square when this uh, crime happened, right? And what typically happens, I know this from having worked at one of the companies, Google, is that the company pushes back on that. Uh, they, the, the companies almost all push back on these extremely broad requests as saying, no, 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 that's overly broad. If you come to us and say, we have reason to suspect John Doe, and here's a warrant, we'll give you John Doe's you know, information. But um, these kind of overbroad geofence um, uh, data requests are something that the companies resist. Now, there are actually proposals. I know there's one in New York State, and I, th- and I think potentially in California as well, that would restrict the ability of law enforcement to even issue these kind of geofen- geofence data requests. Of course, the typical response from law enforcement is, well, there's cases where it might be valid, right? And so yeah. that's where and a lot of policymakers are, are, are low to um, kind of cross law enforcement on this question. So that's why these proposals tend not to get very far. But um, but that's definitely something that is has been part of the, the tech policy debate. Indeed. And I know that our military has artificial intelligence and big data systems that they've been using to track terrorists. And, you know, sometimes it's as little as metadata, but I know that our predictive analytics that'll say we're going to get this person we're tracking in two weeks time is going to be in this village and without an entourage that gives us an opportunity for a drone strike and i'm thinking if the military has that you know the civilian implications are are huge but adam is the real big issue that we're dealing with first amendment issues like i i understand like what you're may be prohibited from saying, as in your, you know, talk about child pornography, things that are clearly reprehensible, but is there any risk about who's going to be allowed to speak? And then the other thing, if you could maybe shed some light on, does content moderation make that platform 
company a publisher and subject to defamation or, or slander or libel? Two important things. I mean, there's a lot there. One, First Amendment isn't about, doesn't protect your right to say what you want any anywhere you want it, particularly if it's on a privately run service. And so, for example, there's a whole number of Supreme Court cases that that basically say that, you know, the operator of a website or an ISP can um, has their own First Amendment right to decide which kind of speech is allowed on their platform. This is the, the question at the heart of two laws that were passed by Republicans in Texas and Florida last year that essentially restrict platforms' ability to, to engage in content moderation. I, I, I hope and I predict that the companies, the platforms, will ultimately win those cases at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court generally has recognized that the um, frankly, there's a long tradition of even from, you know, the, the bake shop case, right? The gay, the gay, um, uh, marriage bake shop case that recognizes like companies have their own first amendment rights. And whether you disagree with that, not that's a, that's established Supreme court precedent, the hobby lobby case, for example. And so I think that that will eventually uphold the rights of Google, Facebook, Twitter to moderate content as they see fit and will strike down those those laws. This question of does this make them a publisher when they moderate is really a misunderstanding of the law. People say, you know, um, the, the people sometimes uh, look at something like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and, and suggest that if they engage in content moderation, then they lose their <clears throat> liability protection. Uh, you know, they're no longer a dumb pipe. That's not how the law works. Section 230 was meant to incentivize the platforms to actually engage in content moderation by saying that even if you do engage in content moderation, you're still not liable for the in, the user's individual tweet or post. And if that, because if they were, they would never be able, like that service wouldn't even exist, right? Because if, if you were, if Twitter was liable for every dumb tweet, right? Let's just say that we agree about what objectionable content is. Yeah, and, which we'll never agree, by the way. Like the, by the definition yeah, right. of that, well, is like I mean, objectionable is like yeah. Uh, and I don't want to go down the Alex Jones path because yeah, we we never know, agree one hundred percent. Meaning, let's yeah. assume there's places that 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 we could agree. What I, I was trying to pose the question about who can be moderated or censored, whichever word you want to use, versus well, we're afraid that person might say something, so we're not going to let them on. It is. is oh, there I don't any- think. Yeah, I don't think the platform should ever say we're. I, I think, and I don't think there's any. Um, well, so for example, like all of the platforms have rules that if you are affiliated with a foreign te- a foreign terrorist organization on like the State Department list, like you're not going to get an account, right? <laughs> and so that's you know they might deny that person an account from the very beginning. How far a step is yeah. that from you're deemed a MAGA Republican? And mm-hmm. therefore, we're not going to give you a spot on our platform. I don't see any of the platforms doing that. Another platforms have do, have done that. I think that would be a huge mistake um, for both stifling expression and also, frankly, like uh, making their services unappealing to a big swath of the U.S. population. Right. So um, I don't I don't that's not I don't think in their interest. And I haven't seen that. One of the things I think all, all the platforms have moved towards is more of a strikes system to say like, okay, if you have one post that violates our system, like you're going to get a warning, right? We're not going to kick you off right away. And and I think that makes it, both Twitter and Facebook do this. I think that makes sense because what they're trying to say is, look, we're going to have standards, but we're going to give you some sense to kind of, you know, uh, get in line with those standards. Now, I think increasingly 
there are other places you can go. You can go to Parler. You can go to Truth Social if you don't like the, um, you know, you can go to Rumble if you don't like YouTube, right? So there are there are alternative places to go, and the existence of those alternatives, I think, makes it harder for people to say like, I don't, I, I, I don't have anywhere I can't kind of express my views. I've got a lot of other questions about differences in companies and such, but as we near the end of our time together, and you've been very generous with your time, so advice for our audience and any actions that they should take or is there anything we didn't cover that we should have talked about today or any policy perspectives that you'd like to make our audience aware of? No, I think the thing I would just sort of uh, leave with is the, the comment I made earlier, which is I think that, you know, we are we are currently in the stage of tech policy debates where, again, there's a lot of a lot of the debate is about kind of people trying to push their perspective on content moderation. And a lot of that's par- par- partisan from both sides. But I think from a, with respect to kind of how we regulate technology, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can get to this next stage where we focus on encouraging what's good about a particular service or technology and focusing and, and trying to prevent what's bad about it after it happens, you know, not, 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 not stop the, uh, not stop the technology kind of in the cradle because of what we're concerned might be happening. And I think the same would be true of speech, right. To make sure that like, when you're talking about something like content moderation, let people speak, but be clear about what the rules are and enforce the rules as, as fairly as, as possible. The kind of the avoiding the tech equivalent of book burning. So nobody hears or sees from, from that author. Yeah. I think that would be a mistake because I think the fact is like, you know, one of the things that's great about the internet is the ability to get to all this stuff. That doesn't mean like any individual companies have to have an obligation. You know, the New York times doesn't have to publish my letter to the editor, right? Like I'm not being censored by them, not publishing my letter to the editor. Right. But, but the point is like, what's great about the internet overall is you can pretty much, you know, find, uh, anything you're looking for. Right. It's peer-to-peer communication and we're crushing hierarchies because of the technology. Yet, as we saw early on, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Right? That's right. <laughs> Where they're coming from. Uh, Adam, any closing thoughts for our audience today? No, thanks for having me. This has been great. Great. We've been talking today with Adam Kovakovich from the Chamber of Progress. I hope that we can have him come back because there's a lot to talk about on this. This technology is going to affect all of our lives. And until then, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.